He says, honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Are you part of what Peter talks about there in that verse? Are you, tall, are you, are you part of the brotherhood? Do you even know what the brotherhood is? I don't know about you, but I rarely hear Christians use that word brotherhood. I don't hear Christians walking around saying in, with their daily language, well, you know, I'm thankful to be part of the brotherhood or that or that. It is such a blessing to, to be part of the brotherhood. I, I never hear that. This word brotherhood is not commonly used in our religious terminology today. In fact, not only is it not used in, in our religious terminology today, but it's also not used very much in the Bible. It's also not used very much in the New Testament. In fact, in the New, in the New Testament, this word brotherhood that you find in the text is only found once. It's only found right here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 17. Here Peter uses the word brotherhood, and with that language, Peter, he's describing, he's describing the people of God. He's describing Christians. He's describing disciples, those who are part of the Lord's universal body or the Lord's universal church. With this word brotherhood, Peter is not talking about a local church. He's not talking about a local church of Christ. You see, while many folks in the religious world mix up these two concepts, the New Testament writers, they, they never do that. The New Testament writers never mix up these two concepts. The New Testament writers never mix up the universal body of saved with a local body of saved. They always, always, always make a clear distinction between the two. They always make a clear distinction between the two churches in the Bible. The question is, do you know that distinction? Can you explain that distinction? Can you explain to someone who is not a Christian how the brotherhood or the universal church is different from the local church in the New Testament? Can you do that adequately? I want to suggest that we of all people, we should be able to do that adequately. I want to suggest that we of all people should have a good understanding when it comes to the two different ways that the word church is used in the gospel, for example, and I appreciate Brian for, for fixing this for me. He's such a good man, and he does so much for me. When it comes to this concept of the church, the ecclesia, the called out, we need to understand that according to the gospel, there is a difference between the universal church and the local church in respect to scope. There's a difference when it comes to scope. When I say scope this morning, please understand that when I talk about the universal church, when I talk about the ecclesia, the universal body of people who've been called out of the world and they've answered that call of the gospel, when it comes to that church, the universal church, it's just that. It's universal. It is a universal body of saved people. In other words, it comprises all the saved, all disciples, all Christians. 
It doesn't matter if they lived in the first century or if they live in the 21st century. It doesn't matter if they are dead or if they are alive. It doesn't matter if they live in Africa, Australia, Europe, the States. It doesn't matter where they may be located on this planet. Every disciple is part of the universal church. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 and verse 18. Here Jesus in Matthew 16 and verse 18, after Peter confessed him as the son of the living God, he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church, my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I want you to notice how in this verse, Jesus makes a vow. Jesus makes a promise. Here, Jesus promises that through his redemptive work at Calvary, his church, his church was going to be established. His church was going to be built. His church was going to come into existence here in this verse. Jesus, he's promising to build his church. He's promising to build his church in this verse. And please understand that when the Lord promises to build his church, he's not talking about a building. He's not talking about a beautiful meeting place like this where people come together to worship God. Contrary to what we may be hearing from a lot of religious folks today, the Bible never and never one time used the word church to talk about a building. It never one time used the word church to talk about a meeting place where religious folks come together to worship God. Instead, every time, every single time in the gospel when the word church is used, it's always used to talk about people. It's always used to talk about a plurality of people. Particularly, it's always used to talk about people like us, the people of God, Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ. And so here in this verse, Jesus, he's not talking about He's not talking about building a building. And you know what else he's not talking about? He's also not talking about building a local church. He's also not promising to build a local church that dwelt in, in the city of Jerusalem or any other city in, in, in this world. Instead, here in this context, the Lord is promising to establish a universal body of people. He's promising to bring into existence a universal family of believers or saints. The Apostle Paul used the word church in this way all throughout his writings. For example, in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1 and verse number 22. In Ephesians 1 and verse 22, Paul says that God gave him Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body. You go to Ephesians 5 and verse number 23. In Ephesians 5 and verse 23, Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. You go to Colossians 1 and verse 18. And there Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. And then I'm not sure if Paul wrote the book of Hebrews or not, but regardless of who wrote the book, notice what the text says. It says that if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church, notice, and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Notice how here in Hebrews, 
Ephesians 1, Ephesians 5, Colossians 1, all throughout the New Testament, the word church is often used in a universal sense. It is often used to refer to the totality of God's people, all of those who are part of the Lord's church. The word church is often used in a universal sense, but in addition to that, the word church is often used in the New Testament in a local sense. In a universal sense and a local sense. Paul does this also often in his letters. He begins many of his letters by talking about local churches. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. Paul begins that letter by saying to the church of God in Corinth. Galatians. Galatians 1 and verse 2. He begins that letter by saying to the churches that are in Galatia. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 1, he begins that book by saying to the church in Thessalonica, and then a very well-known verse to us, Romans 16 and verse 16, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, all of the churches, all of the churches of Christ greet you. Notice how in these verses, Paul is using the word church, not in a universal sense, he's using it in a local sense. He's using it to talk about local churches. You see, while the universal church is unlimited in scope, we need to understand that the local church is limited in scope. When we say the local church is limited in scope, we mean that the local church is limited to a group of Christians who live within a close proximity to one another, and they've agreed to do God's work together in a specific location, a specific location like maybe Phoenix, Arizona. You see, as Christians in Phoenix, Arizona, we've agreed to be a local church. We've agreed to act as one. We've agreed to accept the common oversight from shepherds that we have appointed. We've agreed to pull our money and, and our finances together and our resources to, to support the work of God. We've agreed to, to pull our talents and our spiritual abilities together to, to glorify God. Sometimes the word church is used in a universal sense, and sometimes it's used in a local sense, and these two things are different in scope, but not only are they different in scope, they're also different when it comes to numbers. They're different when it, when it comes to number or numbers. In the case of the universal church, how many universal churches of Christ are there? Well, there's just one. There's just one. Contrary all of this denominational stuff we see going on today, that's not found in the Bible. That's not God's will. God doesn't approve of all this division. He doesn't approve of a Baptist church and a Catholic church and a Methodist church and a Pentecostal church and an X, Y, and Z church. That, that concept is foreign to New Testament teaching. Remember in Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, church. Singular, not plural. There is only one universal church. But that's very different when it comes to local churches, right? We should know this from studying Revelation, right? Who was Revelation originally written to? Who was the original targeted audience? Who did Jesus personally address in Revelation 2 and verse 3? Well, we all know it was seven churches. 
seven local churches. Seven local churches in Asia Minor. While there's only one universal church, there are many local churches, many that we can read about in the Bible, many that are in existence today. There's also a difference between the two when it comes to how one becomes a member. In regards to the universal church, one becomes a member of it by being added to it by the Lord. When it's added by the Lord himself to the universal church, once they submit to him in baptism. And Acts 2 and verse number 47, after those 3,000 people heard the gospel, and after they repented of their sins and were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, the Bible says the Lord added the saved to the church. The Lord asked to the church, men don't add the saved to the universal church. Men don't give access to the saved in the universal church. Preachers don't add the saved to the church. Elders, church councils, a board of spiritual directors, whatever that is, those people don't add you to the universal church. Only the Lord does that. The Lord adds the saved to the universal church, but it doesn't work that way when it comes to a local church. Listen carefully. While the Lord adds the saved to the universal church, a Christian, a disciple must decide to join himself to a local church. Don't miss that because so many people don't get that. So many people don't understand that. So many Christians even fail to understand that while the Lord will not deny you access into the universal church, if you obey the gospel, because local churches are led by men, fallible men, you can be denied entrance into a local church. You can be denied fellowship into a local church. That is exactly what happened to Saul of Tarsus. And Acts 9 and verse 26. After Saul of Tarsus obeyed the gospel, after he became a Christian, the Bible says that eventually he came to Jerusalem and he tried to join himself. Some of your translations say he tried to associate. He's trying to place membership at this church. But they were all afraid of him. And they did not believe that he was a disciple. Notice how Saul of Tarsus was denied. He was initially denied fellowship into this church. Why? Well, because... They didn't trust him. They knew his background. They knew he was a persecutor of the church. They thought he was a deceiver and a fraud. They thought he was trying to infiltrate the church. And it wasn't until Barnabas stepped up and spoke for him and said, no, he's a changed man. He's a good man. He is now a preacher of the gospel. He's not a persecutor anymore. It wasn't until Barnabas stood up for him that they finally allowed him fellowship to be into the fellowship of that local church. And so... Contrary to what some say, you can be denied fellowship into a local church. Many folks fail to understand that, and many folks also fail to understand that after a person is added to the universal church, that doesn't mean that they're automatically joined to a local church. Let me say it again for the sake of emphasis. Just because someone obeys the gospel and they're added to the universal church, that doesn't automatically mean that they join themselves to a local church. Again, while the Lord adds people to the universal church, a disciple must make a decision to join himself to a local church. That's what Saul of Tarsus is doing here. And so there's a difference. There's a difference 
when it comes to how one becomes a member, and there's also a difference when it comes to makeup. When it comes to the universal church, it contains who? Well, it contains all the saved. It contains all of those who are disciples or Christians, contrary to what some believe, and listen carefully to me here, contrary to what some believe, the universal church is not a composition of all local churches. That is not what the universal church is. It is not a, a composition of all local churches. That can't be the case because there's some saints who are not part of a local church. There are some saints who don't have any local church membership. They kind of just want to float around in limbo for whatever reason. I never have been able to understand that, but there's some saints like that. They just want to go from this church to that church to that church to that church. They don't have any church membership. They just want to float around. Maybe they don't want to be accountable to anybody, but that still doesn't mean that they're not part of the universal church. You can be part of a universal the universal church and not part of a local church. But the local church, the local church is made up of a specific group of saints. A local church is a group of Christians who live in a given place, and they've agreed together to do God's work. Remember, Paul established local churches all throughout, all throughout the first century world. And then there's a difference between the two when it comes to spiritual standing. Again, the saved, only the saved, are added to the universal church. Acts 2 and verse 47, but when it comes to a local church, it is possible to contain some people who are not of us. As John says in 1 John 2, verse 19. Again, because local churches are led by fallible men. Men who cannot read hearts. Men who can only act on what people tell them. Because that's the case, it is possible to allow people into a local church fellowship who really shouldn't be. Who really shouldn't be into the fellowship of the local church because they're not in fellowship with God. You see, local churches can and sometimes do contain people who are not really right with God. But let us understand that God never makes any mistakes when it comes to adding people to the universal church. While men can fool men, men cannot fool God. God knows who are really his. God knows who should really be added to the universal church. There's also a difference when it comes to shepherds between the two. When it comes to the universal church, how many shepherds are there? It's one. Who's that one? It's Jesus. In John chapter 10 and verse number 16, when describing his people, Jesus says that his people are one flock with one shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd of the universal church. He's the chief shepherd. But when it comes to local churches, local churches don't have just one shepherd, but God wants them to have a plurality of quote-unquote, lesser shepherds. They are to have a plurality of lesser shepherds who have met spiritual qualifications and they oversee the, the flock and they serve under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. You see, unlike the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, the shepherds in a local church only have authority to shepherd those members who are part of their local flock, those who have been allotted to their charge. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. When Peter talks to shepherds or elders or bishops, he says that you are to shepherd the flock among you. Among you, 
not the universal church, just among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for money, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I thank God with all my heart that we have what this verse says. We have good, godly men leading us who are shepherds in this place. And according to these verses, these six men who are shepherds, guess what? They're just our shepherds. They're not valley shepherds. They're not Queen Creek shepherds. They are our shepherds. And Valley's got their shepherds. And Valley's got their business. And we got our business. God, from these verses, clearly set the local church up to be autonomous and self-governing. That church has their business. We got our business. Local churches are autonomous. And they're self-governing. In fact, speaking of that, we need to say this. We need to say that there's a difference between the two churches when it comes to organization. As far as the earthly organization goes for the universal church, guess what? There isn't any earthly organization for the universal church. Unlike the Catholic church and the Mormon church, the Lord's church doesn't have some earthly headquarters. Instead, our headquarters is where the head is quartered. The head is in heaven. Our headquarters is in heaven. That's where he's quartered. The organization for the universal church is very simple. Jesus is the head, we're the body. That's how simple God designed the universal church. But it's very different when it comes to the local church. The local church is organized differently. A local church is to be organized with shepherds, elders or bishops, and deacons and saints. There's a difference between the two. And there's also a difference with respect to beginnings. When did the universal church begin? Well, it began in 33 AD, on the day of Pentecost, in the city of Jerusalem. It began 2,000 years ago, but I was talking to Dave Sparks about this a few days ago, and I asked him, I said, well, Dave, you, do you know by any chance when this church, Monte Vista, got started? He said, Sean, just put 1950, just to be safe, 1950. So we'll say to be safe, and this is wrong, blame Dave for that, but we'll just, we'll just say, Dave, this church is about 70 years old, right? And the church I left in Tennessee, it's also about 70 years old. And the church I left in Florida, it's about 60 years old. And the church I trained with in Boba, Texas, they got started in 1949. I mean, throughout the course of history, different local churches are established at different times. And that process will continue on all the way to the Lord comes back. And then what about death? What about the effects of death when it comes to the universal in the local church? Well, if you are a Christian, if you're someone who's been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, then guess what? If you do your best to be, to be faithful to God, death does not affect your fellowship with the universal church. You're always going to be part of the universal church. You're always going to be part of the kingdom of God. Death does not affect a Christian's fellowship with a universal church, but obviously it affects a Christian's fellowship with a local church. Obviously, once we die, our fellowship with this church, it's going to be severed. It's going to be affected. We're no longer going to be members here. 
We're no longer going to be under the oversight of these shepherds. We're no longer going to be pooling our, our resources and our talents with the saints that, that work in this place. Death doesn't affect your fellowship with a universal church, but it does affect your fellowship with a local church. And then what about Satan? What about Satan's power and influence? Well, when it comes to the universal church, I want us to understand that Satan's power and influence cannot prevail over the universal church. It cannot defeat the universal church. It cannot destroy the universal church. Daniel said in Daniel 2 verse 44 that the Lord's kingdom or the Lord's church is an everlasting kingdom. It is an everlasting church. We've been learning that in Revelation, haven't we? Isn't Revelation all about how, how Rome is trying to destroy the kingdom of God, is trying to destroy the church, but, but it won't prevail. Satan's henchmen won't prevail because the Lord's church cannot be defeated, cannot be defeated by Satan. But when it comes to the local church, how often have we seen him destroy local churches? Have you seen that before? How often have you seen the devil creep into a local church and use his power and his influence to cause division in that church and bring about hatred in the church and bring about false doctrine in the church and cause the local church to split over some of the most foolish and petty things? There's so many other examples I could give you this morning, but, but you see it, don't you? You see it. You see that while the word church refers to the people of God, while it does refer to Christians, it's used in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used in a universal sense, and sometimes it's used in a local sense. Sometimes it's used to refer to the totality of God's people, and sometimes it's used just to refer to a group of Christians doing God's work in a specific location. we got to study the context of passages very carefully so that we don't confuse the terms and as a result confuse people that we're trying to reach with the gospel. In fact, speaking of people who we need to reach with the gospel, let me just close by asking a couple of questions. Let me close by asking, are you part, are you part of what we're talking about? Are you part of the two churches? Are you part or have you been added to the universal church? Have you been added to the universal church? Are you part of the brotherhood? Are you part of the universal body of saved people who have answered the call of the gospel? If you're not part of the Lord's church, am I asking you if you're part of some man-made denom denomination? No, if you're not part of the Lord's church, I want you to know that you can be part of that today. You can be added to that today, and you can be added to that by doing the same thing that people did 2,000 years ago to get added to it. Go to Acts 2. Let's look at Acts 2. You might as well put a, book, a Bible marker there today because we're going to come back there for the second lesson, okay? But in Acts 2, remember Peter preached this powerful sermon about Jesus, about Jesus being the Lord and the Christ. That is the main mission of every preacher. Every preacher needs to be preaching Jesus, telling people about Jesus. If we miss Jesus, we've missed it all. He told them about Jesus, and after hearing about Jesus in verse 37, it says that they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? The implication of that is what shall we do to be saved? We want to be right with God. And Peter said, Repent. 
And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is a reference to the promised gift of salvation. And in verse 39, it says, for that promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us. That's Gentiles. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. In verse 41, it says, so then those who have received his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. Verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, adding to the, to the church. Day by day, those who were being saved. That's what they did. That's what they did 2,000 years ago. The Lord added the saved to the church once the people who heard the gospel believed they were pierced in the heart and they repented of their sins and they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what they did. And if you, if you haven't done that, you need to do that. You need to do that today. And if you do that today, guess what? The Lord going to add you to his church. He's going to wash away your sins. And he's going to add you to his church. And so have you been added to the universal church? And if you have, which most people here have, then let me ask this question. Have you joined yourself to a local church? Have you joined yourself to a local church? Someone says, I don't think I need to do that. Someone says, I don't think it's important for me to join myself to a local church. Someone says, I think being part of the universal church, that's enough. Really? Really? You really believe that? I hope you don't believe that nonsense. I hope you understand that if every Christian had that kind of thinking, then guess what? You wouldn't have any local churches. You wouldn't have any local churches to read about in the Bible. You wouldn't have any local churches today. You know what else you wouldn't have if, you had, if everybody had that mentality? You wouldn't have any shepherds in the church. You wouldn't have any deacons in the church. You see, while God lays out the qualifications for these offices, we need to understand that local churches actually appoint men to the offices. Local churches actually look out among them. And they decide as a unit that certain men among them meet the qualifications that have been laid down in the scripture. That's what we find in Acts chapter 6, right? And so if everybody has the mentality that the local church is not important, then you wouldn't have elders. You wouldn't have deacons. And then think about this. If the local church is not important to God, then why in the world is it found all throughout the Bible? Why in the world did Paul spend much of his life risking his life establishing churches, local churches throughout the first century world? Why in the world is much of the New Testament written to local churches? Why is there the church at Corinth and the church at Thessalonica and the church of Galatia and the church in Berea and Philippi? And the list goes on and on and on and on. I mean, clearly the will of God is for every Christian to be part of a local church. Clearly, it's God's will that I be part of a local church. You be part of, local, of a local church. Every Christian needs to be part of a local church because the local church is key to us equipping one another and encouraging each other and holding one another accountable and helping each other get from this earth to God's heaven. And so, again, I got to ask you, are you part of the two churches? Are you part of the universal church? Have you joined a local church? If not, you can do both of those things today. 
You can do both of those things today. And if you have done both of those things, which most of you have, then I want you to understand this as we close. That it is a good thing you've embraced God's will. It is a wonderful thing that you've embraced the will of God when it comes to what the Bible says about the universal church and the local church. But please understand that even though it is a good thing for us to be part of a local church, on the judgment day, God's going to judge us all on an individual basis. You understand that, right? You understand that we can't ride on each other's coattails when it comes to going to heaven. None of us will be saved just because we're part of a local church. We got to do our part in that church. We got to be faithful to God. And so if there's someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel in any way at all, we're going to sing this song and invite you to come. Let's stand. Let's sing.